Today on Abounding Grace, we're looking at our beginnings and answering big questions like where did the earth come from? Are we here by accident or divine design? This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. Hey, it's great to be with you, and welcome to Abounding Grace. Pastor Ed Taylor will join us in just a moment, and we'll continue our series in Genesis. Chapter 1 tells of how God created, and we want to take some time to appreciate the well-thought-out work of creation. Only God could pull this off. We established last time that there's good reason to believe these are six literal 24-hour days of creation. And then God rested on the seventh. Here's Pastor Ed with more. One of the reasons we're spending a little bit more time and even giving recommendations like Answers in Genesis.org and other resources to help you understand, one of the reasons we're spending a little more time on this than just kind of going through a chapter a week is that a fundamental understanding of the first 11, 12, 13 verses of Genesis is essential in answering any of the humanistic questions in culture today. Like this is foundational in understanding and of all the different theories and things out there, I want to assure you that there are simple answers to complex questions. There are simple answers to complex questions. I, I chose my words carefully there because simple answers don't meet, make the questions less complex. And there are complex questions. And there are, what about this? And what about that? And I read this and I put this together. And you got all of this. It can be so overwhelming, especially as I've shared before. If you're like me, I'm not a very scientific person. That's not a strength of mine. And so it could be very easily to overwhelm me. You go, wait a minute. What about this? And what about this? And I read this. And I'm like, well, you know, my Bible says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and I believe that. And I believe it happened just this way. Well, well, explain it to me. Well, I can't. I wasn't there. I don't have the mind of God. But I'll tell you, this is what God wants us to know, that he commanded light and it was there. That's what he wants us to know. And he wants us to know in verse four that he saw it and he declared it good. And he wants us to know that it was divided where there's a day and a night. And as God separates light from darkness, there are all kinds of implications that come from this separation. There are moral implications, spiritual implications, ethical implications. I mean, the Bible is filled with these visions of light and, I mean, these illustrations of light and darkness. Light being good, darkness being bad. The Bible tells us what? To walk in the light, to live in the light. The light is, speaks of transparency, honesty, openness. It speaks of everything is open. We're not trying to hide anything. We're walking in the light. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And then this is the emphasis, this is the reason, he says, for what fellowship, what, and we learned this on, on the weekends, right? What koinonia, what is there to share? What can we share in intimacy, and he says that, between righteousness and lawlessness? They're at odds with one another. They can't have koinonia. And what communion has light with darkness. And even to this day, 
For those of you that will go with us on this trip coming up in a couple months to Israel, or perhaps the Lord would have you come to us, come with us uh, on a future trip if the Lord doesn't return. Even today in Israel, the day starts in the evening. That's how they measure time. Light has, if you're taking notes, uh, I looked this up, uh, light has five basic functions as God created it. Number one, light divides darkness to give light to the earth and universe. Number two, light makes things grow. Life cannot exist without light. Man, animals, green plants, algae are all dependent upon light in order to live upon the earth. Thirdly, life, light gives heat and warmth. Number four, light gives color and beauty to things. Number five, light enables man and animals to see. Light exposes things, all the universe and all the earth, so that man and animals can see and carry out their function in a world of variety and beauty. So when God saw that light was good, light fulfills its function. It, it does what it's supposed to do. Light was exactly here on day one what God had planned, the way it was designed, perfectly fitted for its purpose. You're going to see that pattern in each day of creation. Exactly what God wanted created, the way God wanted it created it, the purpose for which it was created, establish what God did, establish exactly what he wanted. And when you think about that, again, when you step back and think about that, don't you think God's going to accomplish that work in your life as well? That God is going to complete and finish what he started in your life. That he knows what he's doing. It's tainted and touched by sin for sure. But even tainted and touched by sin, God overcomes our weaknesses and our failures. He, there's a beautiful word for that. He redeems and he restores. Those are so good. They're so wonderful to know that God will accomplish his purposes. He's the potter. You're not the potter. He's the potter. You know what you are? You're a big lump of clay being fashioned and molded on the spinning wheel of the potter. He's going to accomplish his will in your life. God created light. And light is one of the greatest words in scripture. I'm going to give you a list of things. I'm going to give you a brief one. If you want to take notes, great. If you want to email me, I'll send them to you. But consider these passages in scripture about light. Light is so important. Number one, God is light. There's no darkness in him at all. 1 John 1.5. Secondly, Jesus is the light of the world. The very embodiment of heavenly light. John 8.12. Thirdly, the light of the knowledge of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Jesus Christ lights every man who comes into the world, John 1, 9. Fifthly, believers are said to become children of light through faith in Jesus himself, John chapter 12, verse 36. Number six, believers have been transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of Christ, the inheritance of light, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Number seven, before they come to Christ, believers are not only in darkness, but they are the embodiment of darkness. But when they come to Christ, believers are placed in light and become the embodiment of light itself, transferred into the kingdom of light, Ephesians 5.8. Number eight, believers are the light of the world, Matthew 5.14. Number nine, believers are, set, are to set their light on a candlestick or to make it available, to make their light seen, not hidden, Matthew 5.15. Number 10, evildoers shun the light, John 3.20. And then finally, I mean, you can go on and on. There's a lot of references. But number 11, the creation of light here is a picture of the expulsion of spiritual darkness right at the beginning of 
creation. That's how it all starts, light, to separate the darkness, which brings us to day number two. Notice in verse six. Then God said, let there be a firmament. Some of your Bibles might say expanse. If you'd like to write in your Bibles, you can circle that word. And just to help you remember, atmosphere, separation and atmosphere, uh, in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. Verse seven. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And so it was. And God called the firmament heaven. And so the evening and the morning were the second yom or the second day. How do we know that refers to a literal day just by the simple English here? There was a day and a night. That's why this is a literal day, the yom, as it was used 1,500 other times in the Hebrew scriptures to speak of a literal day as we would understand it. So here in the beginning, there is a lot of water on the earth and a lot of water above the earth. And somebody that measured this, the amount of water continually suspended in the air now above us is estimated at 54 trillion, 460 billion tons of water just floating on the, above us in the clouds around the world today. The amount of rain and snow that falls upon the earth is the equivalent of 186,000 cubic miles or enough water to cover the earth at a depth of three feet. And that's just today. So even as we live today and look up at the beautiful clouds, we're reminded at just how much water, even after creation, is hovering above us. The water canopy above the earth helped to stabilize the planet, making it a tropical paradise during the time of the Garden of Eden. Um, they've even found, as people have searched, they found mammoths found, have been found encased in ice at the poles with vegetation in their mouths. The climate also helped to extend the lifespan of man because it was protected from the UV rays and things before the flood. There was definitely enough water to flood the earth at this time. So God, what does he do? He divides it. He divides the waters, causing the clouds, fog, and mist to leave the face of the earth and hang in the sky. And he creates the atmosphere or the expanse in the middle, the air, the expanse, the space between the clouds and above the earth. And here he declares it, as heaven. Now, this is not a reference to heaven where God is, where God dwells eternally. This is a phrase that represents the atmosphere, the separation between the clouds, the mist, the fog, and the water uh, that is still in the ocean and in the ground. Uh, remember, the Bible speaks of three different heavens, and we're not going to develop it here, but we have developed it when I was studying, teaching through Corinthians. Three different heavens. Heaven number one is the atmospheric heaven, if you want to use that word heaven. This is where the birds and the bugs hang out, the atmosphere, the separation. Secondly, there is the celestial heavens, the celestial heavens. This speaks, this is home to the moon, the sun, the stars. And then finally, there is the spiritual heaven, and this is where God dwells, the eternal realm. So the heaven here is just the expanse. On, on day two, he separates it all. Number three, day number three, verse nine. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was Good. And then God said, let the earth bring forth grass and herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. 
And the earth brought forth grass and the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. So here we are in day three. We have dry land, we have the seas, and we have plant life. And so the earth was separated from the waters. Dry land wasn't created on the third day, but notice he uses the word appear. The earth was there, and he's separating and putting things in order. And he named the earth and the seas. Turn over to Psalm 104. Let's go to Psalm 104. We'll go through the rest of the day, and then we'll address a popular opinion on this particular text that's among us, especially here in Colorado and probably in 30 other states in the United States of America. In Psalm 104, notice with me in verse 5. Psalm 104, verse 5. You who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, and at your rebuke they fled. What are we reading about the rebuke that they fled? Right here in Genesis, as their things are being separated. At the voice of your thunder, they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you founded for them. What do we call the place that, so far we've learned here, he calls the place that he founded for them, seas. Notice he says in verse 9, you have set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. And he sends the springs into the valleys, verse 10, which flow among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. By them, the birds of the heavens have their habitation. They sing among the branches. And the, he waters the hills from his upper chambers. And the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. And he goes on talking about the grass growing, vegetation for man. And notice in verse 14, vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to make glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. And uh, on and on. It's a beautiful psalm. But you see that this is a description of what's happening, a very beautiful description of what's happening here in, on the third day. Now, notice that the earth, in verse 11, produces vegetation. And he, God says, let the earth bring forth grass and the herb that yields seed and the fruit tree and the yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind, God saw that it was good, and that was the end of the third day. So you got the grass, and you have the herbs that yield, that yield seed, you have fruit trees. Notice plants, plants were created. Um, they were not created as seed, but they were created as full-grown plants with seeds to propagate themselves. The wisdom of God, how he took care of things. He created the plants. They have seeds to propagate according to their kind. You know, the earth the vegetation have purposes. Um, vegetation provide food. Uh, the earth's vegetation now supplies oxygen to the atmosphere. It, the earth's vegetation helps control the climate, uh, helps to keep dry land from eroding away. Uh, the vegetation uh, helps to decay and provide fossil fuels for the earth. Uh, it captures energy from the light and converts it to chemical energy through photosynthesis. It's the chemical energy that makes life possible on the earth, and on and on it goes. So some of our friends like to um, come to this passage, and they like to validate their smoking of marijuana. 
And because look at what God has given us. It's given us the herb and he called it was good. But you know, they're very selective in what plants they choose to use and what plants they choose. Because I've never met anyone that says, well, you know, poison ivy also has been given to us, even if it's been touched and tainted by sin. And I don't see people taking poison ivy and running it all over their bodies. Because when you come to the Bible, well, you know, of course I can get high because God gave it to us. Well, with that kind of logic, you can make a lot of bad decisions by reading into the text what you think is good for you. And again, this is prior to the fall. So as Adam and Eve are going through the garden, whatever the marijuana leaves and whatever the plants were, they didn't lead to sin. They weren't prohibited. It wasn't what was going to lead to sin. After the fall, now plants become something other than what they were created, created for. And it is not God's will, especially you guys here in Colorado, but wherever you are, that now because marijuana is legal, and now all of a sudden because something's legal, we think it's okay for us. I, I was always, over the years, as pastors would deal with this question, they would just simply dismiss it and say, well, you know, it's illegal, so stay away from it. But that's the wrong kind of logic, especially in a world like ours, because you have people that get voted in the office and people that have ulterior motives that don't really care about you and change the laws so that more taxes can come or change the laws to keep people under the influence of, of substances so they can be more easily controlled or used. Or, like there's a lot of different ulterior motives to keep you out of a sane mind, to take advantage of your life, to have you in a constant stupor and drunkenness. And it's not just, don't, don't, let, it, don't let it in the statement I'm making in the human realm. It is a demonic assignment to destroy your life. There is a, dynamic, deno, a, a, a demonic assignment that is there to kill, steal, and destroy through substance abuse, even legal substance abuse, to keep you in a state where you're not living in reality. Let's face it, even as I was drawn back to Job today in our prayer time, reality is painful and it's hard. And Jesus said, in this world, we will suffer tribulation. Everyone suffers tribulation. Every human being on the planet earth now and that will be born until the coming of the Lord will experience deep pain. Some other, some more than others. Some much, much more than others. And some, as you continue to add years to your life, you have more and more pain. And, and as you extend more of your love to others and you extend more of your trust to others and you, you extend more of your life in relationship with others, then pain comes from all the people that are connected to your life. And then there's pain from strangers. And then there's pain from our own bad decisions. Then there's pain from consequences of sinful decisions we can't undo. I know as I was raising my kids and even to this day as I feel as a pastor and as a shepherd, an under-shepherd over our church, man, I plead with you, please don't go the road of decisions, especially those decisions that you cannot undo. You, know, you get away with this and go, oh, I got away with it. Get away with this, oh, I got it. And you, you kind of think like, well, I can get away with sin. But you're on a road where you're going to head toward a decision that cannot be undone, that will have lifelong consequences. You will live with the pain of a momentary decision for the rest of your life. So what does God do? God sends pastors and teachers into your life to remind you to trust God with your life. He has with some of you parents that love Jesus Christ. Oh, of course, parents aren't perfect. We all make mistakes. We deliver the information wrong. We may even be consistent in our own lives. But you listen to what the truth of what your parents say is compared to the scriptures and obey them. 
Don't make them the excuse. You don't want to make a sinful decision. Listen, I think this is from the Lord. You don't want to make a sinful decision just because you're mad at your parents or you're mad at your pastor or you're mad at your friend or your uncle. They go, you know what? I don't believe you. I'm going to do my own thing. And certainly God gives you the freedom to do your own thing. That's where true love comes from. That's why the choice to obey God is a choice of love. It's not a forced choice on us. Nobody's making us obey God. Nobody's making us do anything. It's not you have to do these things. It's you get to do them. This, this is the pathway of relationship. We're going through Genesis one verse at a time here on Abounding Grace. Pastor Ed Taylor is our teacher, and remember, you can access these studies at AboundingGraceRadio.com. Pastor Ed, as we're studying creation right now, a question comes to mind. As you may know, many students sit in a classroom where this simply isn't taught. In its place is the theory of evolution. So what encouraging word can you leave them on how they might be a light in a dark world? Well, that's a, that's a big question, Larry. It could go a lot of different ways. But we were just talking about this in our, past, in our staff meeting today about what the world has and what the world doesn't have. There's this scripture in Ephesians chapter 4 uh, in verse um, 15 that we often quote where it talks about speaking the truth in love. But before we get to speaking the truth in love, the Bible says in Ephesians 4.14 that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But instead, speak the truth in love that we can grow up in all things uh, into him who is the head, Christ. And we were thinking about this and we're like, hey, look, the world has a lot of things. We can't match the world in the trickery of men because trickery is not a, not a tool in God's hands. And we can't match the world in their cunning craftiness because cunning craftiness is not a tool in the hands of God. And we can't match the world in their deceitful plotting because deceitful plotting is not a tool in the hands of God. But the world can't match us in the agape love, because the world doesn't know agape love except through believers. And it's important as we're sitting in that classroom, listening to the philosophies of men, and it's important as we're sitting at home, maybe listening to argumentation among family, that as we choose to be a light in a dark world, it has to be an agape, self-sacrificial love. That's a tool we have that breaks through all the other deceitfulness, craftiness, lying, darkness, confusion, everything that the world tries to throw our way is diminished by the light of God's agape. God's agape, that's a, the Greek word for love. And it's the word that describes the love of God. It's not like the word, you know, there are different words, Larry, I'm sure you know, that in the Greek used to describe love. There's eros that, that describes a sexual love. Of course, we have an English word erotic today that immediately draws you to that Greek word. We're not talking about that. There's also the word phileo, which is a friendship love, a kindness love, it, you know, like the city of brotherly love, right? Philadelphia, phileo. Um, that's not this love. Agape love is God's love, his self-sacrificial love. And that's, you get caught up in the arguments, you get caught up in the science, you get caught up. And although I do believe there's good reasons and good facts in this discussion, if you do it without agape love, it's worthless. You might even win the argument, 
but lose the person. It's agape that breaks through all the barriers. So walk in agape. That's how we are light in a dark world. Thanks again, Pastor Ed. Abounding Grace is made possible through the generosity of our listeners. Each gift that comes in serves to help us present the teaching of God's Word on both the radio and Internet. And think of this. You'll be helping thousands all over the world learn about God's amazing grace and how to grow by it. And today, when you give a donation of $25 or more, we'd like to say thanks by sending you a useful resource. It's Spiritual Leadership by Oswald Sanders. You'll receive key principles of leadership in both the temporal and spiritual realms. Sanders points to great examples like Moses, Nehemiah, the Apostle Paul, David Livingstone, and Charles Spurgeon. And you'll learn about the cost of leadership, the responsibility of leadership, as well as the qualities and criteria of leadership. Just call 877-30-GRACE to make your request and donation today. You can also order online at calvaryco.store. Well, thanks again for joining us today for Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. May God richly bless you with His abounding grace. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado and online at AboundingGraceRadio.com. Abounding Grace.